Thank you, Joel. One of my favorite leaders of the 20th century is Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during World War II, and his just indomitable strength and wit and oratorical abilities preserved his country from annihilation during that time, and he's quite a character. One of the stories that I love about Winston Churchill comes from the autumn of his life, where he was attending a dinner with a bunch of people, and, and his wife, Clementine, was with him. And a reporter asked him the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you most like to be? It's a great question. And the room waited in anticipation of his answer. And Winston Churchill said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and he took his wife's fragile hand, and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. <laughs> it's a great answer. And husbands, if you want to score some points, try that one at home. I'll marry you all over again, if I could. Well, we're going to be looking today at what it means for a husband to love his wife. And if you could turn there in Ephesians chapter 5, let me just review what we saw last week. As Christians, we have a core identity. All of us, whether you're young or old, male or female, uh, whether you're married or single, all of us as Christians, we are wife, we are child, and we are slave. We are part of the bride of Christ. We are children of the Heavenly Father. And we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. And so that, those core identities should shape everything we do as Christians. And along with the core identity, we have a common calling. And last week, one of the things we focused on in our call at common calling is the, the call to submission. Every one of us is called to submission in different roles and responsibilities. We all have to submit. But then we said that in our different roles, we have particular focuses um, in our callings. And last week, we, we focused on a wife and her particular role and calling. And if you want to hear about that, you can listen to last week's sermon. And the main thing I hope that husbands took away from last week's sermon is that if you have a wife who is paying attention sincerely, not perfectly, of course, but sincerely trying to be the kind of wife that this passage describes, it should fill you with humility as a husband, and you should treasure her and cherish her. Now this week, what I want us to see is that all of us have a common calling to love. If you would just look back up at chapter 5, verse 2, we've already been in this passage, but remember what it says here. This is to all Christians. Walk in love as Christ also loved us, and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So Jesus is being held forth here as an example of love for all Christians. His sacrifice on the cross is our summons to love one another. So no Christian can say, I'm exempt from this command to love. This is for all of us. But for husbands, there is a particular call a particular responsibility to love our wives. And we're going to look at this now from Ephesians chapter 5. Would you worship God with me as we hear his word from verses 25 through 33? Hear the word of God. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, the main point to this passage couldn't be any clearer. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And that main point couldn't be any more daunting either. As Christ loves the church, husbands, we are called to love our wives in that way. Just let that sink in for a little bit. Christ loves his church. It doesn't say here he has pity on his church, though he does. It doesn't say he's merciful to his church, though he is. It says he loves us. And that is actually overwhelming to think of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That, that should always amaze us. He loves us in a special, exclusive way. Now, Jesus loves the whole world, but his love for his church is a love unlike the love that he has for the world. He chose us to be the special recipients of his love, much like a husband chooses his wife. And Jesus says of his church, they are mine. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Christ loves us unselfishly, not because of anything we bring to him. He loves us not because we're lovely, but through his love for us, he makes us lovely. He takes us when we're foul and filthy, like God called the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, to marry a woman of unfaithfulness. And Hosea married Gomer, knowing that she would be unfaithful to him. And he said to her, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And that's a picture of Christ's love for us. He comes to us in our filthiness, in our unfaithfulness, and he loves us when we're unlovely and makes us lovely. And amazingly, Christ takes delight in his love for his church. He calls us his friends. He calls us his brothers and sisters. He even calls us his spouse and uses endearing language to speak of the love that he has for us. Jesus loves us so much, Spurgeon says, he links his destiny with ours. He has entered into the same boat with his people. He has put his own skin in the game, taking on our flesh, leaving the glories of heaven to enter into the squalor of earth. He has become one with us in our humanity so that he can redeem us from our iniquity. 
And because he shares fully with us in our humanity, he can sympathize with us in all our weaknesses and sorrows. There is no sorrow that we have on earth that he does not feel in heaven. And likewise, the joys and the triumphs of Christ we can share in and rejoice in because we're united to him in this living, loving, lasting union. So we can see here that Christ's love for his church is our model. It's our standard for husbands and how we should love our wives. And I want to draw this out in four ways this morning. First of all, husbands, loving your wives requires sacrifice. And the word that's used here for love is the agape word. It's the word that speaks of self-sacrificial cherishing of another. It's far superior to the kind of love that's based on mere feelings or sexual appetites. And it's a love that's proven in action. How did Christ prove his love for his church? We'll look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What did that look like? Well, it looked like mocking. It looked like spitting, being spat upon. It looked like being whipped and scourged. It looked like having a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. It looked like wrists being pierced through with nails and ankles and and being pinned to a cross and then lifted up, exposed to the elements to die. Bearing the awful weight of our sin. Experiencing in his own body the tremendous wrath of a holy God against the sins of the world. Jesus held nothing back. He gave himself up in total, unreserved self-sacrifice. That's his love for the church. So whatever it means for a husband to be the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church, it certainly does not mean that he stomps around the house like a dictator. Whatever it means, it means costly self-sacrifice on the husband's part. Loving your wife means pouring yourself out with all your heart to serve her best interests. So husbands, we should look at this and and consider questions like, how am I sacrificing for my wife? How are you setting aside your own interests in order to seek her interests? How are you making her priorities your highest priorities? Are there ways you are gladly relinquishing your own preferences in order for her to enjoy her preferences? What have you denied yourself this week in order to love her more? What has it cost you to love your wife lately? And have you paid the cost gladly as Jesus did for you, for the joy that was set before him? He endured the cross, despising its shame. Are there little ways, little things, in which you're saying no to self in order to serve your wife? For me, it it sometimes means just making sure after I've shaved that I wipe the water spots off the countertop because Kate doesn't like having a messy countertop. Or it means, and she was in the first service, so she's going to require this of me now this week, um, it means playing Scrabble with Kate sometimes and letting her just pummel me, which I know she's going to do every time we play. She always wins. 
If we're not sacrificing the little things, how are we going to be ready to do it in the big things? Maybe the point of this application would be to ask your wife, what can I do to serve you better? What would it hurt you to ask that question this week? What can I do to serve you better? Loving her requires sacrifice. You must be ready to die for her. But before that happens, in the meantime, you've got to be ready to die a hundred little deaths to self on a daily basis. And in order to do that, you've got to realize Jesus died for me. He died for me, not just because I was a little sinner who needed a little bit of help from God. He died for me because I was a great sinner, a big sinner who deserved nothing but condemnation. And instead, I got grace upon grace from him. Here, here's the thing we got to realize. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage, they, they describe what happens in every young marriage. They say, as soon as you get married, within a year or two, you begin to find this process going on. You start to know, notice how selfish your spouse really is. And then the second thing that happens is they start to tell you how selfish you really are. And then the third thing that happens is that you don't see your own selfishness anywhere near as bad as you see your spouse's selfishness. That cycle tends to go on in most marriages. And men, if we're going to love our wives sacrificially, we've got to start seeing our own selfishness as the biggest problem in our marriage. And we've got to realize Jesus died for that. That's why he died for me. And when your heart is captured by this costly sacrifice that he made for you, and when you realize how gracious he's been to you day by day by day, it will condition your heart to love your wife sacrificially with the love that you've received from Christ. So that's the first point this morning. Loving your wife requires costly self-sacrifice. Secondly, loving your wife aims for her sanctification. John Stott points out there are five verbs tracing the progression of Christ's commitment to his bride, the church, in these verses. What are those five verbs? We'll look at verse 25. First, he loved the church. Secondly, he gave himself for her. Thirdly, he did this in order to sanctify her. Fourthly, having cleansed her, that he might present her to himself. Those are the five verbs. And these verbs seem to trace the, the care that Christ has had for his church from eternity past to eternity future. In eternity past, he loved his church, choosing us to be his bride before we ever even knew him. Then in time, he came into the world, joined himself to our humanity so that he could give himself up as the sacrifice for our sins. He did that on the cross. And why did he do that? What was the purpose of his sacrifice? That he might sanctify her, it says, having cleansed her, washing her with the water of the word. Now there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 9, that talks about how God found Israel when she was a castaway on the streets. And it says he washed her with water, rinsed off her blood, and anointed her with oil, and then he made her his bride. 
And Paul's thinking of that as he writes these verses. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has cleansed us, forgiving us our sins. He has justified us by grace through faith in him so that we're no longer guilty. We're no longer covered in shame. We're clothed in his righteousness. And now he's sanctifying us. That's his ongoing work in our lives by his spirit, causing us to grow in holiness and righteousness until the day when he finally we are finally presented to him as a radiant, spotless bride. That's what we're going to experience in the future. And so that is the aim of Christ's self-sacrifice for us, and that must be the aim of a husband's love for his wife. We must love our wives sacrificially in pursuit of their highest good. And what is our wife's highest good? Our wife's highest good is that she become like Jesus, that she become holy without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Of course, that doesn't mean you're supposed to keep your wife wrinkle-free throughout her life. What it means is that your highest aim should be for your wife to become increasingly like Jesus. So loving her sacrificially means praying for her and praying with her. It means weaving the word of God into your home and into your conversations. It means placing a high priority on the church as a means of grace and modeling love for the church and cherishing of the church as the husband in the home so that your whole family is, is cherishing this means of grace. It means seeking your wife's flourishing so that she becomes all the woman God uniquely created her and redeemed her to be. In his commentary on Proverbs, Ray Ortland points out that the word husband is related to the English word husbandry, which means cultivation. So a husband's job is to cultivate and nurture his wife. Ray Ortland says, your lifetime impact on your wife should be that her life opens up more and more, that she is enabled to become all God wants her to be. Now, husbands, you cannot sanctify your wife. That's the work of Jesus through his spirit. He's the one who's going to get all the praise for your wife becoming presented to him in splendor, holy, and without blemish. You can't do that. Only he can. But you can, by his grace, cultivate conditions in your marriage and in your home that are conducive to her sanctification. You can cultivate conditions in your marriage and home that are conducive to her flourishing as a woman. And that requires us men turning to Jesus ourselves for cleansing and sanctification so that we can become the kind of men whose love for our wives is used by God to make them holy and blameless in his sight. We have to turn to Jesus to become such men. You can only do this if you've experienced his cleansing yourself. And I'm, I'm mindful that there may be someone here who's thinking, this is the first time I've actually even thought about marriage in this light or thought about my responsibility as a husband like this. And, and maybe you're someone who's never come to Jesus for cleansing yourself. And, and you're hearing about this, and I, I just want to invite you to come to him, to realize that he's a living Savior, and, and that you can experience cleansing from Jesus that will transform your life and transform your family. So a husband's love for his wife must involve costly sacrifice, and it must aim for her sanctification. 
The third thing we see in this passage is that loving your wife is the best thing you can do for yourself. Look at verses 28 and 29 again. These verses tell us that just as the second greatest command in the Bible is to love your neighbor as yourself, the second greatest command in marriage is to love your spouse as yourself. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Now think about it. When two become one, whatever is good for one is good for the other. It's like that between Christ and his church. Whatever is good for Christ is good for his church. And whatever is good for his church is good for Christ. In marriage, it's the same way. D.A. Carson puts it like this. If we see that we are so linked together by this sexual, covenantal, personal marriage union, that what is good for me, what is good for her, and what is good for us are all bound up together as one, then pursuing her interest is also pursuing my interest. Man, what that means is that if you're not loving your wife, you are hurting yourself. Let's be very clear here. If you are giving yourself over to lustful imaginations for other women through pornography, what is that? That is hating your wife. That is being unfaithful to your wife. And in hating her, you are actually killing yourself. You are killing your own joy. But if you seek truly to please your wife in every way, to please her through your words, to please her through your attitudes, to please her through your attention to her, through your sexual devotion to her, you will find that your own joy is enhanced in marriage. Even your own sexual joy in marriage will be enhanced when you are giving yourself fully to loving her. If you cherish her, If you delight in her, it will bring joy and delight to you as well. I realize in saying these things that all of us fail in many ways, and Jesus is a savior for our failings. I also realize that that we come with disappointments. We come with pain in our marriages. What I want to say to you husbands is that if you are feeling pain and disappointment in your marriage, if you will take seriously what God's word is saying here, God wants you to know that by cherishing and caring for your wife, you can actually contribute to the healing of the pain and to the redeeming of the disappointments that are in your marriage. Don't wait for her to start. You Take your part in cherishing her and caring for her. And God will use that as a means of healing, of redeeming. He's a great redeemer. He redeems the things that disappoint us. How do you do that? Well, you got to realize what he's doing for you. What does it say at the end of verse 29? Just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. He sees us as so joined to him 
that he nourishes and cares for us. So husband, if you're in Christ, you are a recipient of the nourishment and the care of the Lord Jesus in your life. He's doing that for you. And so if you're disappointed in your marriage, take, take to heart this counsel from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, if we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. In other words, focus on what God has done for you. You have more than you deserve through the love of Christ for you. And if you will massage that truth into your hearts, he cares for me. He nourishes me. Though I do not deserve it, it will condition you to weather some of your marital disappointments. So in loving our wives, we are actually loving ourselves. We're doing good to ourselves. I read a story about this that illustrates it beautifully. It comes from a surgeon named Richard Selzer. And he describes being in the hospital room of a young woman after he had performed surgery on her. And he watched her young husband greet her for the first time after the surgery. And this is a really touching story. Let me just read it for you. The surgeon says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. To remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. There is a man who's learning to love his wife as he loves himself. And he's experiencing joy in the midst of it. I love that phrase, a husband showing his disfigured wife that their kiss still works. I think, isn't that a great picture of the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus is doing for us? That brings us to our last point this morning, the most important point. Loving your wife is all about reflecting the gospel. Look at verse 31. Here Paul takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
He reminds us of what God said after the marriage of Adam and, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul tells us there's a profound mystery going on here. He tells us that what God was inventing in the marriage of Adam and Eve was actually not the original marriage. No, the marriage of Adam and Eve in the mind of God was a human copy of a divine original. There is a marriage that God has been dreaming about since before the dawn of time. And Paul tells us the names of that couple in verse 32. I am talking about Christ and the church, he says. That's the divine original. So every time I do a wedding, I read words like this. Shortly before his own wedding day, a man wrote these words. Marriage is heaven's drama performed on an earthly stage. And then I talk about how the Bible, human history, begins with a marriage, with a marriage of Adam and Eve. And how the very first words out of a human mouth recorded in scripture are love poetry. At last, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I talk about how God was the, the minister who officiated that first marriage, bringing his son, Adam, to his wife, to his daughter, Eve. And how that's act one of a drama that spans the centuries of a marriage between God and his people. And then I talk about how human history is going to culminate with a marriage, how we read at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation these wonderful words, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. All throughout the Bible, God portrays himself as a bridegroom to a bride that is so often faithless. And then Jesus enters the scene. Just think of Jesus with the woman at the well. Coming to the Samaritan woman, he says, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And yet he loves that woman. And she experiences living water, the washing of Jesus in her life, and, and she becomes a new woman. This is a picture of God's love for us, his people. And our marriages are supposed to be a reflection, a picture proclaiming to the watching world what, what it's like to belong to Christ as our bridegroom and to be his bride. So what if your picture of your marriage is shattered right now? What if the kiss no longer works? Is there hope for you? What I want to say to you is that in Christ there is always hope. But you have to lift your gaze to him. Think about it this way. If you're out on a bike ride and you're riding with someone else, maybe your, your spouse, you're both on bikes riding together, what happens if you start staring at each other while you're on those bikes? You're going to go crash right into one another and, and you're going to not enjoy the ride. But if you will look straight ahead, you can enjoy the view and you can ride closely together. 
And what often happens in our marriages is we, we start staring at one another. You're not doing this for me. You're not doing that for me. And we get disappointed in one another and accuse one another. And, and soon we crash. But if we will lift our gaze to Jesus, and, and if we will remember that marriage is ultimately not about us, it's about the glory of God. If we'll get our gaze fixed on him again, we can actually ride closely together in this, in this adventure called life. And we can enjoy the journey and we can enjoy the view along the way. But we have to lift our gaze to Jesus. We have to remember that marriage is ultimately about him and it's for his glory. So would you join me now in bowing before the Lord in prayer?